0: I will start about Emmett Jr.'s experience in the Marine Corps in the uh, Yellow River fight in the Battle of Korea. I think it's 1950 in the late, uh, early winter in December anyway. And I'm just telling you, it as best I can remember it when he told me when he came back and some other things that I've learned. But he, he had been in the Marine Corps for two or three summer sessions and had been out to Dago taking his boot camp, and he'd had quite a little bit of training, and Les Proctor was his commanding officer. And they were out, and they And I prevailed upon Les in the uh, late fall to try to get image Artis to go on overseas, so he could get a little experience in the Korean conflict. And, and uh, Les did that. He got Emmett sent over. But the uh, either Emmett was either in the Fifth Marines or the Seventh Marine. But one of them or the other relieved uh, the other one up at the up at the front. And uh, they had gotten up to the Yalu River, the uh, to rel- make this relief uh, movement when. Uh, the Chinese entered the war, and they entered the war just about dark, or at one night, and Emmett was telling about it. He said they had, uh, they were standing around in their tents, none, none of the boys that were up with him, very few of them had ever been in combat before, and they heard all this hail break loose, and the bugles were blowing, and fire, shots were fired, and they were just a battle going on, and they'd never been in one. Well, they had a, of course the, they, uh, had a staff meeting immediately of the, of the two battalions of the Marines that were up there, and, and I talked to a major who was in it at the staff meeting uh, later on when he came back to Austin, and he said that uh, they tried to, to figure out what the situation was, and they were p- hard put to it because they didn't know that the Chinese had entered the war in such fast order. But they finally figured out what it was, and they knew that the, the men they had out on perimeter defense were not going to last long, and so they reinforced them with the, uh, the battalion that was already there and had a little bit of battle experience. And then they were going to put image battalion out uh, the next morning. And they were bringing in the wounded and trying to get the material ready to everything shaped up to where they could leave the next morning. And um, the uh, CO sent one man out on perimeter defense and, and told him to hold the lines and, and keep the Japanese, the Chinese from coming in on them. And this boy asked him, I said, uh, I said uh, uh, Major, what, what's my secondary objective? He said, you don't have any sep- secondary objectives. He said, you stay there until you die. You don't let them in. And that was his orders, and that's what happened in many, many cases. But anyway, by daylight, they had uh, gotten the thing pretty well on hand, and they'd uh, made arrangements for air support to hit the Jap- uh, the Chinese line by daylight. And they'd gone up and put out their markers uh, where the our lines would be on the snow, and, of course, it's freezing up there. And, and so Emmett was up by daylight with a, a boy from, from Tennessee, one of his friends. I believe the boy's name was Brewer. And um, he said they were laying on the bellies because they didn't have any tools that could dig a foxhole. Said that the Chinese had all their good good equipment. They had picks that they could dig with, and they in the folding ter- uh, terrain. But said the equipment that they had issued the Marines there, they couldn't dig in. They got breaking the handles with them. But anyway, he was laying down at daylight when the corsair first wave of corsairs came in to support them, and said they right down on the deck, and said when they. They uh, saw the markers, and they cut the rockets loose under the wings, and is right over the, over him, and, and he thought they had made a mistake and dropped the, dropped these on him. Of course, they shot right on out ahead and hit right where the Chinese were entrenched. And he said that either that day or another when i just tell the experiences as he told me, that uh, the uh, Sir Corsairs would come in and they'd cut these rockets loose, and then they would. Uh, uh, Try to come out of the foxholes, and they'd drop the napalm on them, and just they'd come, they'd just be in flames. They did, and then they'd, if that didn't get them, they'd try to cut them up with the propellers. That's where the, the Marine Air Support was uh, on that occasion. But I'll just hit the high spots because I'd rather him tell his own experiences. And he said, of course, they never, uh, from the time that he went out on perimeter defense, he didn't, he didn't come in. He was until uh, unless he was wounded, he didn't come in. And out of the sixty men in his platoon only 18 of them survived uh, and uh, all of them had frostbite. But Emmett was a B.A.R. man and he said that he told one occasion that he had uh, been uh, they were up and they saw a bunker that uh, the, the Chinese were uh, had over on the hillside there and that they called down and had them and uh, the old boy, they, of course they all had foxholes. Emmett said the first thing he did after the first day he run a uh, Chinaman down uh, and uh, took his pick away from him. Whether he had to kill him or not, I'm sure he did. But he got him picked to dig him a hole. They figured that, uh, they'd take their time back digging these holes. So whenever he set up for a night, a night defense, well, he had him a hole. Because the boys were, the Chinamen were using mortars to great avail. They weren't very good at pistol shots or rifle shots, but they could sure drop the mortars on you. And if you wasn't in a hole, you'd just liable to get... But anyway, they call this the this rifle up. They pointed out the bunker where, where there's three bunkers, or what there were, three bunkers over, and they had to go, uh, get them knocked out before they could, could uh, go on with the maneuver they're making. And so this old boy, he sighted them, and he shot three times. It was a 75 recoilless rifle. Uh, and, and started fixing up to leave, and they asked him, where are you going? He said, you'll find out in a minute. And he hadn't more than gotten, it wasn't but a minute to lay, lay down mortar fire on this position where this recoilless rifle, boy, being in days that's the only thing that saved them from this mortar fire then he said that he was called down after about the second night of fighting like that along the perimeter in uh the, some ham hung or some town there where the marine base was uh, where they they were bringing the wounded and the material back down the, the roadway and he was called in and said of course they were all sick sick at heart anyway they, he hadn't been wounded and he didn't know whether he was frozen all over or not but he felt that way and said he uh, wanted to go to sick bay and he saw a long line of course all the boys were trying to get in sick bay he said he got in line, and there was an old boy that had tried to take a drink of water out of his canteen, and it flowed into his lips. <clears throat> and he looked like one of these eubanky Africans, and they said it was funny, and he figured that he wasn't near as bad off as that old boy, so he just got out of, out of the line. But he said they were burning up the, the, the bags, the sleeping bags, as they went on back down. The, uh, and he, he crawled off of them off of the, off of the fire and, and rolled it up, going to carry it and put it in, the, in his... Uh, when he went out on perimeter defense the next day, well, he was going to have that to, to keep warm in, in his foxhole. He gave him a foxhole and put his sleeping bag in it so he could uh, have, try to keep warm because the weather was the worst enemy they had. <clears throat> but he said the next morning, well, his rifle team, he had been, he was the BAR man, and, and uh, since it was the heaviest gun, and he was probably the smallest uh, man in the team, well, he had uh, swapped with a, one, one of his uh, other uh, uh, teammates. And uh, let him carry his B A R, and he was carrying this old boy's carbine. And he said during the night, of course the Chinamans had tried to get into their camp there where they were camping, and and uh, there had been a bunch of them was killed. And there's a little old narrow gauge railway they'd uh, stacked these bodies, these Chinese bodies up along, and they had to walk along by them. And he said, uh, of course the equipment the Chinese had, they had these padded uh, suits, and and they had the hand grenades kind of pinned on the chest and on the on the front of them, so as they could grab them and throw them off and that uh, there was about 34 of these Marines were going long ahead of him, and and he was looking at this stack of dead, supposed to be dead Chinamen. and there was one of them, some smoke was coming out of his nose, and he knew that he was breathing. And so, Emmett uh, said, just he had, uh, just after two days of battle, he had gotten cold-hearted enough to wear that, that he figured the man, as soon as he got by him, was going to jerk a hand grenade off and throw it under his feet. So he just put his carbine, and, yeah, so one of his teammates had loaned him up against the Chinaman's chest and pulled the trigger, and the boy hadn't loaded his rifle that morning. It just clicked. Well, of course, the Chinaman knew it was time to move, so, so he come up and was grabbing for a hand grenade, and he jumped out of the way and hollered for his buddy who had his B.A.R. that was standing about six feet from him. He hollered to him to cut the Chinaman in two, which he did. He swung around with his B.A.R. and, and shot the old boy in two. And uh, just little instances like that happened, and uh, then he... He said that uh, he was when they went down off of the big bluff, going down to the sea. That he had been out about four or five days on perimeter defense, and he said they were nearly all floating, and they knew that, that they that they had done their duty, and they were getting that once they could get in this chute to go down the road to, to the sea that they would be reasonably safe. And uh, he said that uh, he he was kind the B.A.R., and his feet were frozen, and he didn't know it, but. Uh, some of the other boys decided that they had better hurry because it looked like the last one of the vehicles was going to be down the pass before they got to it if they weren't careful because they were the, the, the last lookout. And he told them, he said, if you try to run off and leave me, I'm going to kill you. And he had threatened to kill his own teammates, but they wanted to survive too. So they got down to uh, uh, what the last truck that went down the pass at either Ham Hong or wherever it was there. He said he jumped up on it, and there's a bunch of tin, tin things, big, big tin cans that's on, on the... Uh, and they, they just had dreams of that being food, that they are going to get some food finally. And he said that, uh, uh, well, some of these were slipping off of the trucks, were slipping off of the uh, the pass or the, the mountain road going down because of the ice and such as that, but they made it on out to the bottom and said that as soon as they stopped down there, they wanted to open up one of these cans and get something to eat out of it. And he found out that he had been sleeping on a, an ammunition uh, uh, truck. It, all these cans were loaded with some kind of, of ammunition. Well, I meant to say this, that the first morning before these airplanes came in to support him and this boy Brewer from Tennessee was, was laying up, they didn't have a foxhole and a mortar shell hit right in front of him. And uh, he punched his buddy to tell him that it was time to move somewhere. He did, that's the first uh, fire that he had been under and uh, the mortar had killed his, his buddy. And that was his initiation in the war. And I was hunting it at uh, Fredericksburg. one old right at the time that this was taking place and we knew the only information we had was that that all the Marines were being decimated and I just figured I'd lost my oldest son and he was dead and I was up at Fredericksburg hunting and I got a long distance telephone call that uh, came from uh, San Francisco Emmys called us and told us he was home and then we called Sadie Eccles who happened to be out there and told her to go by and see him at the hospital Jimmy Jr. had been flown back from uh Japan. Uh, and when he got to San Francisco, somehow or another, he, uh, Sadie found out about it, and she said that after he got down to the sea, they took him on into Tokyo by ship, his, uh, all those that they could, and, and said he was in the hospital. He thought he was dead. He had just, all his, his hands were both black, and his feet were frozen, and his hide had come off of him, and he thought he was in bad shape. And, uh, a, a doctor came along and looked him over, and he said, son, you're going back to the States tomorrow." And uh, they flew everything back to the States that could fly at all. Now, there was, of course, of propaganda about that Korean conflict in that Yalu River, river was it. They minimized them. But they had every man, uh, I think every man in that conflict perhaps was a casualty. But uh, they flew everyone on back that could fly to the United States. And now he was flown back to the United States for medical attention, and he had frozen hands and frozen feet. So he hit at San Francisco and I got this call from Fettysburg and of course uh, I came on to Austin and I got in touch with him somehow out of my phone and he told me that they were going to send he and uh, a whole plane load of boys that were with him <clears throat> on over to some base in Florida, get them just as far on the east coast as they could because they were filling all the hospital beds up on the west coast and, and all over the United States and the marine bases and naval bases. So. He told me when he would be in, in San, They were going to come through Lake, Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, so I went down with El May, and we met him at Lackland one afternoon there, and there four or five of these boys with him, and I met them, and one uh, I mentioned a while ago that the veterans of Iwo Jima, that were just a short time after that battle, and they were still very, very godly. And um, Emmett Jr.'s boys, they just looked clean. They had been uh, out of battle only about a week, and maybe, maybe a little over, not over 10 days that they were out of that conflict and, and uh, they, they had not been tainted yet by civilization and they were the cleanest individuals that I believe I ever saw. And when I say clean, I mean clean from the inside out. Now there was a, an occasion uh, the following year, the following Thanksgiving, it might have been in 51, and uh, Amy Junior had been sent on up to Quantico and he was in the training battalion in Quantico for a while and uh, he got leave for some reason, he came home and he was at home on Thanksgiving Day. And I remember uh, uh, Elmay and I had gone to the Texas A&M football game. They had it in Austin that year. And, and uh, as we come home, well, Emmett had been out hunting on the ranch uh, uh, with his uh, rifle. And it was about 5 o'clock, and he was then sitting in the living room in, on Red Bud Trail up there, the big house, where Judge Hunt now lives. And he was uh, cleaning his rifle. And uh, as we came up the driveway, we noticed a, a buck deer out in the front yard on his tree there. So I was going to run in and go upstairs and get my 30, thirty and reach out to one and take a shot at him. We needed a little deer meat. And as I went through the living room, I just said, there's a deer out on the front lawn. And so before I could get upstairs, I just uh, put his gun together and his uh, rifle together and stuck it out the front door of the living room door and shot this buck. And it's about 40, 50, well, 30, 40 yards off and killed it. Well, hey, he was mad then, apparently, because never. Came running in to see what happened, and she saw that him, she strung it up in the front yard there and gutted it. And she said, "Doesn't that make you feel a little squeamish?" And uh, he just incidentally made the remark, "Well, it's no worse than killing a man." Now that's um, how people feel about those things. Another sequel to this is that somewhere about a year, it might have been that same year, a little later on after Thanksgiving, uh, one Sunday, uh, I've gone over in the north end of the ranch and. Uh, checking deer hunters we was claiming about 2,000 acres of land at that time and Emmett had gone over on the west end of the ranch hunting and I had found four hunters over on the bound survey land that I was claiming over in the north end and had to go a long ways around West Lake Drive to get there and, and I, I casted this, uh, these four and told them that they had no right to hunt on my place and I didn't want them to hunt any further and to quit well one of the boys I knew very well his name Shorty something a surveyor and he said they wouldn't hunt anymore that they thought they, they knew where they was hunting but he said he would not take an issue with me so I come on home to, for lunch. When I got home, about 12 o'clock at noon, or Emmett had come in from the west end of the pasture, and he hadn't killed anything, and I told him what I'd found, that these boys were over there hunting on our land. And he said, well, Daddy, maybe we'd better go over there and be sure that they don't hunt anymore. We, we've got to protect our property. So I had taken a drink of whiskey, uh, getting ready for lunch, and so we got in the pickup, and and I drove, and Emmett brought, took his rifle with me. I left with him. I'd left my rifle at home, but he had a scope on his. We went back over there. It took us about 30 minutes to get back over there, and we drove down through the pasture to Little Old Cedar Road. And when I got down there, these four men were sitting down on the side of the road, waiting for, uh, there was three of them there. waiting for a car to come in to pick them up. And uh, just as we was uh, getting ready to talk to them, I'd gotten out of the pickup by blocking the road. And, and uh, Emmett got out behind me. I didn't notice too well. And, and uh, then we heard another car coming up through the brush. And there was uh, four men in the front end of a pickup, or the one seat of the pickup, and all of them had their deer rifles. And I noticed the one driving it was named Jack. And he had been a sort of the bull of the woods out in this area, and been running over people. And he had actually taken, uh, uh, held his gun on one of the ranchers out in this area, and, and uh, about a year before that, and taken the keys out of his pocket, and made him take his pants off, gave him his pants, and took his keys out to get in his gate. Well, I had determined he wasn't going to do me that way. But there I was with a rifle, and but we had him blocked. And so they came up and couldn't get by, and so I walked up to the to, the, uh, to right-hand side of his pickup to one of the boys there, and, and asked him, let me, have his, let me see his driver's license. And old Jack was driving on the other side. All of them had their rifles in sight. And uh, Jack said, you don't have to show him your hunting lot He ain't no goddamn game warden. And then I, I had just enough to drink to kind of make me feel like I was a big man too. And so I picked up a rock and I said, I'm gonna throw it through your goddamn windshield. And, and uh, then I got around in front of the, the pickup. In the meantime, this boy uh, Shorty that was over one of these first four we had buffaloed, I thought, well, he's standing right there close to me. He jumping up and down, and saying, don't shoot, don't shoot. And old Jack was getting ready to open up the, well, he had opened up the door on his side of the pickup and getting ready to get out with his rifle in his hand. And so there was old Stumpy, it was Stumpy Wilson. He jumping up and down, and saying, don't shoot. Well, I thought, well, how in the hell am I going to shoot? I haven't got anything but a, but a rock. And then I looked around behind me and. Well, I didn't look around behind me first, and I, I, wait, I saw Jack's eyes get big, and he kind of pulled his door to, and crawled back under the wheel, and said, I don't, I didn't want no trouble, and I looked around behind me, and there was Emmett with his rifle up on his shoulder, and he'd, uh, rolling his, uh, sight down, rolling his, uh, his, uh, scope down to a zero, and, uh, Jack saw it, and he'd aimed it right at Jack's chest, and it wasn't six, seven feet away, and so, uh, they, uh, said they'd go if we'd let him go, so, uh, Emmett put his rifle down, but he held it pretty close where he could get at it in a hurry. And, and uh, so we backed up, and all eight of these men left. And uh, when they got off up through the Cedar Brush going out ahead of us, there's just one road to go, and we was going to follow them out. And, well, I asked Emmett, I said, uh, Emmett, what was you getting ready to do? Well, he said, Daddy, there were four of those men in there with rifles. And, and uh, when Jack started to get out, of course, Emmett knew him. He said, I figured I could kill every one of them before they could get out and get their rifles leveled off at you or me. And he made it. And so I could just picture four or five men jumping around out, out there like chickens with their heads cut off. And that wasn't my idea of a nice Sunday afternoon. And then in retrospect, I got to thinking, I thought, well, by God, at the O.K. Corral fight, uh, the herbs and, and old Doc Holiday all put together, didn't kill that many men. And that we'd have had a, a battle uh, in my pasture on a sunny afternoon. It would have been more notorious than the most famous gun battle of the West. Now I tell these stories just because to show you how uh, one kid and the training the Marines will give you. Now uh, it, it takes them a year or two after they get back in civilization to get to the point to where they feel like that a man's
1: life is worth uh, taking a lot of crap over. As a sort of farewell statement, a final statement, I'd like to say this is I went to Quantico I was afraid of lightning, I was afraid of a lot of things, and I thought my life was just too important to, to uh, lose, and that I was a big, big individual. Well, they taught me in the Marine Corps that I wasn't worth a damn. They really give you a pretty fair idea of what your position in the world of things are, and yet they taught you also that you were the finest creature of, that God had ever created. and so. They teach you to where you'll fight like him, or you're not, but you're not afraid of anything. And I got to where I actually was not afraid of anything in the world, and that was certainly a wonderful feeling. And when you associate with people that have been through the expansions of these and have, like to, the veteran of Guadalcanal and Iwo Jima, you have really lived a pretty good life. And the spirit of the Marine Corps is just this. It means that a man knows his true worth in the world, And that is that really, uh, why should God put his finger on you when you're so, so insignificant? And yet, you are the best that he ever made.